welcome. We are starting now with the climate optimists. We call us that. We have a series of, of podcasts headed by myself, Jens Ulfvetmo, and my partner here, Erik Solheim. Today we're talking about the energy transition. A transition that's imperative for our globe and our future quality. To help us along on this, we have four experts covering academia, NGOs, and uh, business. Nils Klippenberg here is the managing director of Siemens. We have Sigrun Osland, the head of Zero, the leading NGO on climate in Norway. We have Ole Henrik Re, strategic client executive in Microsoft. And we have Klaus Moon, the, <coughs> the dean of the University of Stavanger. Now, we call ourselves the climate optimists. How on earth can we say that? When I've been here now for one 24 hours, and I've heard about nothing but crisis. We have two crises. We have one, the climate crisis, which is obvious, for the first time ever. It's all held in three continents at the same time. We're drafting China, Europe, the US. On top of that, we have a security crisis coming out of the tension of the Russian attack of, of Ukraine and, and the weaponization from Russia of food, migrants, uh, <coughs> data, and, uh, and so, so, so where are we? The interesting thing about these crises is that they're not unexpected. They have been forecast for quite some time. So, what, so we will now discuss whether, in fact, there's reason for a name or if, it, or if it's just greenwashing. The first one out has studied very carefully the targets for Norway of reaching the EU targets of minus 50 to 55 percent seven and a half years from now. It seems like a Herculean task, but Nils Klippenberg has studied carefully with the help of the Norske Veritas. Nils, will we do it and can we do it? Thank you. Um, yes, uh, we can improve, but it is difficult. Uh, the study we have made together with DNV shows that it's very difficult to, with the current policy, and I think it's very important to state with the current policies, that it's able to, to reach the goals for 2030. Uh, the goal is, of course, to have minus 55% compared to 1990. Uh, what we see in predictions are that we will reach approximately the half, ref 25%. The important thing about doing studies like this is to be aware of, so creating awareness for where we are compared to where we're going to, to go. So we do have challenges in transport sector, in the oil and gas sector, and also in the industry sector. But it is solvable. Now, Sigrid, in zero, you say we can actually make it. Do we have the conditions for doing so? Well, I agree we don't, we're not on the course of making it. That's true. If you look at the current climate policies that we have, including the CO2 tax going up to 2,000 kroners, 
it's not enough and we're not going to reach 1.5 or even 2 with current policies. What we do have is all the technology that we need to actually achieve those targets. Um, and we did a report earlier this year where we looked at the government's goal of cutting emissions by 55% by 2030. And we looked at transport, industry, oil and gas, uh, waste, agriculture, showing that all technology is available, not to reach net zero in 2050, but to actually reach where we need to be in 2030. We just need to accelerate climate policies. And yes. I mentioned we have two crises. Does that make the situation more serious, or does the very fact that we have two crises energize societies to actually find their collusion? Well, if I may continue, I was listening today to Fatih Birol, the executive director of the International Energy Agency, and he says it's the first. It's actually this crisis is making the crisis that we already have, uh, giving it an extra momentum. It's difficult, yes, but it's even more important. And, and I think what we're seeing now with energy prices and, and, and with all that's happening, all of those things were there before February 24th as well. It's just that they have been accelerated and exacerbated and just more urgent, but also more difficult. But Ole Henrik, no, she says implicitly that the high, high energy prices is a good news, because that gives the transition. Do you agree, Klaus? Yes, that provides an incentive. But to your two crises, I would like to add another crisis, and that's the crisis of nature consumption and biodiversity, which also has to be addressed. I believe that the current crisis with Ukraine and the high energy prices is really a deterrent and will uh, sort of give a setback for climate policies. And my argument is that uh, the climate challenge is the mother of all global coordination challenges. And once you have this kind of unrest that we have now, it is harder to facilitate global coordination and cooperation. And that's why I am afraid that uh, the current situation uh, could, uh, we face a risk of a setback for, for climate policies on a global scale. So you fear that it will waste a good crisis? Yes, yes, I do, I do. At least on a, uh, on a medium term basis, yes. Yeah, I agree. I think, first off, we do have the technology. I agree. And it's about scaling it. I think uh, the current crisis uh, has shifted a lot of the company's attention, the business's attention, towards energy security. But energy security is not necessarily the opposite of energy transition. It could actually be an accelerator. So I think this could, in a way, be a good thing if we manage it correctly. But I do also agree global coordination is more tricky in the current landscape. Well, it's kind of pulling in opposite direction because obviously on an international level, yes, it's more difficult and there's this whole crisis of, of distribution of, of, of transport globally that makes it more difficult to install solar panels and build windmills and all the things that we need to do. What makes me optimistic in this is what's happening now in the EU where we're clearly seeing that the government is, unlike Norway, reacting very swiftly and saying, what we're seeing now means that we need to scale up renewable energy. We need to really get our move going on energy efficiency. And they're doing things that we're not even near to implement in Norway. To, to put in numbers, <clears throat> Norway is down 4.5% since 1990. EU is down 23%. So it's quite, quite a lot that we have to do in seven and a half years. We have to catch up those 23 and get up to 55. 
Well, in some ways, some of the things that the EU should, needs to do is easier because we already had clean energy in the electric. All of our energy consumption, housing and buildings energy consumption was already electric. And so we needed to go beyond that to cut emissions. But it's true that the EU has done more. And in the last few months, I, we often think of the EU as a sort of very slow and, and, and uh, massive institution where things are taking too much time and nothing's happening. And, and in the last few months, I think, I think we've seen the opposite. And as a reaction to that, you're also seeing big companies reacting to those policies and saying, okay, so if we're actually getting here, if this is actually what the politicians want, we're going to have to rethink the way we do business because otherwise we're not going to make any money in 20 years. And that's good news. Somebody said that uh, to say that Norwegian regulations move at a glacial pace is an insult to glaciers. Yes. <laughs> They're moving too fast and the regulators are moving too slowly. Well, I would like to ask you to kind of put the Norwegian debate into a global context because I haven't been to all the events here, but the message which kind of came out from media is that now the oil companies have a lot more self-confidence. They believe that it will take a lot longer time to phase out oil and that they can recruit more people and make more profits. But isn't that a very Norwegian perspective? I mean, it happens at exactly the same time as Joe Biden got his package on climate through in the American Congress, which no one thought could happen. At exactly the same time, as you say, the European Union is moving very fast into the renewables. And even more so, at exactly the same time as China now is dominating every renewable technology on planet Earth. 80% of all solar panels in the world are made in China. 70% of all electric batteries in the world are made in China. And now China passed 50% of all electric cars running in the world are running on Chinese roads. Yes, we have a higher percentage here, but of course there are many, many, many more uh, electric cars on Chinese roads. So I really ask you, but maybe particularly the big companies, uh, Siemens, Microsoft, you have a global perspective. Isn't this a very insular Norwegian perspective that oil is revived at a time when the big capitals of the world are moving in a very different direction? Well, I think yes, because a lot of the big companies like ours are pushing towards 100% green energy. Every every kilowatt of energy we buy. And, and this, to put it into context, we run data centers all over the world and we are a major energy consumer in a global perspective. So uh, the fact that we are using our purchasing power, I think is, is one of the ways that we as businesses can help accelerate transition by creating a market, by being there and actually buying the green products. Niels? Yeah. For me, two aspects of it. One thing is the global Siemens aspect, as you asked for, Eric. And, and uh, for me, that is about what sort of targets do we set ourselves. We have set back in 2014, we set a global target to be net zero in 2030, and we are ahead of the curve. That means scope one or two, but the more difficult thing is scope three. And of course, in the value chain, what you procure is the easy part. It's more difficult to do in the use phase. But of course, this is the high, really of the high attention in the company to actually make that happen. But also for me, it's about creating industry and uh, let's say uh, people to work in Norway. So that you have the value creation in Norway. 
And that is important. And that means that we need to figure out how can we solve the equation. That means in the transport sector, how do we make electrical trucks to be, uh, or let's say trucks to be electrical? It means you need to make infrastructure. The car manufacturers are there already. The industry is there. The infrastructure is not yet there. Same with boats or ships with uh, hydrogen or ammonia. The same with industry. It's, uh, the industry is very much electrified in Norway. But again, you need to have maybe carbon uh, uh, substitutes uh, based on hydrogen in order to make the, the final change. And again, oil and gas, electrification, either from shore or from, from, uh, from um, uh, floating wind turbines or, or offshore wind in order to make it happen. And if we are able to make this, then we can make a Norwegian industry out of this, which can also then export to, to a broader audience. Yeah, thank you. I appreciate your reminder that the climate challenge is truly borderless and global. That's uh, uh, very fair. And uh, the discussion, uh, both in this session and in Norway, uh, tends to focus on the domestic arena. And that has some fair reasons, because this is where policies are formulated which we can influence and uh, how we can contribute to solving the, this uh, global challenge. And therefore, we are obviously occupied with domestic emissions. I agree that I can share, I can share the optimism, or some, some part of it at least, when it comes to our ability and our technology to meet these challenges. I'm somewhat more skeptical about the willingness and both among uh, politicians, but not least in the electorate. Politicians are the politicians we deserve. They are elected by, the, by, by our voters, and uh, experience so far has shown that the parties and politicians who take brave stands against uh, climate change lose votes. And that makes me uh, quite pessimistic. And that is not a particularly Norwegian phenomenon. It also applies abroad. Well, uh, following the Glasgow, we, we had a grand parade of targets over 2030, net zero 2050. All of them had together, they were lofty, and none of those giving those promises would be present to deliver on them. Do you have any comments on that? I'm not sure I got the question, but I wanted to comment also on Eric, Eric's uh, initial comment that uh, clearly. I don't know if it's a Norwegian introvert perspective, but it's a short-sighted perspective. We know that within a 1.5 degree scenario, there is no more room for new exploration of oil and gas. Uh, there is room for selling the gas that we're currently producing to Europe, etc. but we, we need to shift to renewable sources, and we're doing it slowly in Norway, and part of the reason we're doing it slowly is because all the uh, great minds and, uh, and people and capital is going into oil and gas, helped by a very generous tax package that they were given in June 2020. Not very generous, too generous. <laughs> yes. <laughs> and then I, to what Klaus is saying, I, I agree with that. It's one of the big challenges of climate policies is to get people on board. At the same time, I have a feeling that polit political philandering and, and slowness and uh, an ability to state clearly what's going to happen and what it's going to be like is just a bigger problem. Uh, and there has been a lot of long-term climate goals without any specific plans on how to go about reaching them. Uh, and people are waiting to see what are these jobs that they're talking about, what's going to happen with renewable energy, what's going to happen to my job. I think politicians could benefit from 
being a little bit more clear and brave and, and saying, saying it like it is. But if we do nothing, we think for, for catastrophe. The uh, scientist at CICERO has looked at what happens if everybody do what they say at the Paris Agreement, what will the temperature then be? Their estimate is plus 2.6 degrees. And look at what we have at 1.1. So the incentive there for real drastic action. So, so, so what are the bottlenecks? We have in sun, wind and the technology reasons to, to make it happen. What can we do to actually make a reality of it? Klaus? I think there's a divide here between people's attention and uh, awareness on one hand and the scale and the horizon of this challenge because people know, people know what they have here and now and they're not willing to sacrifice to, uh, to uh, reap benefits which are very uncertain 30, 40 or 50 years ahead then it feels safer to sort of uh, keep on as uh, we go and wait for uh, a really big crisis on which we can respond. To Eric's remark that the oil industry focus could be somewhat domestic or Norwegian, my response would be that more than Norwegian is an oil industry focus, I believe. And that oil industry focus is not Norwegian, it's international, like the ONS. So I think this is an attitude that is present throughout the world uh, among oil companies at least, or in the, in the industry that's represented on, uh, in this uh, conference. And it's hard to us, in particular in this region, to abstract entirely from what's happening in the oil industry. But uh, among the really big nations in the world, only the United States has a big domestic oil industry. China has none. India has none. Uh, and the same applies to most Euro big European nations like Germany. There is not a big German domestic oil and gas industry. So that gives a very dif different perspective. I mean, if you are the Prime Minister of India, of course, your only really driving force is can we replace the skyrocketing price of oil and gas with Indian resources? And what are the Indian resources? The sun, the wind, hydro, and potentially uh, nuclear, because those are the only domestic resources. So it gives a very, very different drive. And in these nations, it's a lot more about the opportunities of the change, not the cost, not how painful or how horrible this change will be, but the enormous opportunities to get new jobs and new business from the change, which, by the way, in the case of India, will drastically reduce the state budget if you can change into the domestic resources. So this is my challenge to you. Could, could we kind of align the Norwegian debate a little bit more with the perspective, say, from many big developing countries? But if you compare the US and Norway, you have to see it in relative terms. So compared to the size of the economy, the US oil industry means nothing to the US economy compared to in Norway. And that sort of uh, explains the attention on this industry from our perspective. But I think it's important that we understand the equation that the politicians are up to, and that is how do you balance uh, the climate uh, requirements, how do you balance it with the welfare, and also with the jobs. And this is together. So even if we should have a global perspective, which I think we all have, we still need to solve those problems we can actually do something with tomorrow, today and tomorrow. And I believe that the, our politicians doesn't really have the sense of urgency for doing this. They're still in the comfort phase, even if the, 
the measurements are going a little bit down on the, on, on the scale, but you know, um, it, it's not like urgent to, to do something in Norway yet. But it's about having long cycles in all concessions, going the new acreage, whatever you have. It takes so long time. The time is the critical point now. It's not the technology, it's not the money for investments, it's the timing. And that means that the politicians need to act. And this is what we see that they're not doing for the We're heading from some pretty tough tipping points. Sigrun? Well, you asked about the bottlenecks, and I think we've been touching on it, but one bottleneck is the enormous profitability of one thing. Uh, and, and the still not yet profitability of the other. And if we had 30 years, there would be no concern because eventually uh, the decarbonized economy would win. It's more efficient. But we don't have those 30 years. We have eight, and so we need to do it faster. And in almost every choice that any business is doing, there's a choice between a fossil and a green solution. And the fossil is, without exception, I would say, cheaper. And so. If you have a very long-term vision and you have a lot of capital and you're a big company, you can say, well, in a 10, 15, 20 years perspective, I'm, I'm still going to make this investment because it's going to make sense since 20 years. But most businesses are small and they have to make the same choice and they're landing on the fossil because it's cheaper. So that's an enormous bottleneck. And then renewable energy access is another and the slowness of how we're doing things, I think, is the third one. I just wanted to add something that I think is very close to my heart and, and we haven't talked about yet. You talked a lot about the energy sources and China's role in producing renewable solar panels, etc. But carbon capture is actually one area where Norway has made investments also from a policy perspective with Langship, uh, with Northern Lights now being just today announced, uh, actually first phase is full. Uh, so I think that's an area where our expertise, our knowledge, everything we've done in the oil and gas industry is directly transferable. It's, it's huge engineering projects, it's subsurface. It's, uh, I think it's really one area where Norway can make a difference and the IEA in their latest, all latest statistics show there's, there's actually no way we can do this without removing carbon, which I think we should be talking about in Norway. By way of introduction, I talked about the energy crisis and the security crisis. The security, the question is if that will accelerate the change or stop it. The last time we had a threat to our energy security after the Yom Kippur War in 1973, we had a big crisis, no talk about climate at all, but we had after that a big effort on energy efficiency, which was very successful. This time around, will the two work in tandem or work against one another, the energy and the security concerns? Depends on which country you're in, I think. Well, <laughs> we're in Norway now. Yeah, clearly in Europe they're walking hand in hand, so they're saying we have a security problem, we're too dependent on Russian gas, we need to use yeah. energy more efficiently and we need to produce more renewable energy. In Norway the debate has not been so much there. Sure. Russia uses gas as a weapon. Yeah. When you're going renewable, it means that we are weather dependent on all aspects. Even if it's sun, if it's wind, or it's water, it's weather dependent. And that means that you don't have these balancing capabilities. We do have the hydropower in Norway, which are very good for us, but the rest of the Europe doesn't have it. So that means that you need to have a lot surplus of green electrons produced in order to have enough power 
and hopefully uncorrelated weather. So that means that you can have a lot of transaction. And this is why it's so important that we have interactions with the rest of Europe in order to have, we can send surplus, earn money, we can buy when it's less. But it will be a lot of transactions going on going forward. And that keeps the security of supply. Because if you don't have it, it we will be, have, have, have less, and maybe we need to rationalize it. Yeah. What makes you think that will happen? Northern Norway does not want to send electricity to southern Norway. Say again? Northern Norway does not want to send electricity to southern Norway. Why do you think international? Yeah, but will the, reason, the reason for that is because uh, currently you need roughly five gigawatt more in the southern part of Norway to counterattack the pricing, get back to normal prices. That it's not enough in middle and, and north Euro, uh, Norway in order to counterattack. So that means that in principle, with the current market mechanisms, the high price will just go north. And it also means there's a lack of infrastructure to even out even within Norway. So that's why we need the, those foreign cables. I have a couple of comments. First to the energy and security crisis. I think there are several uh, mechanisms at work here and they pull in uh, different directions. I argued that I think the net effect will be to sort of hamper uh, uh, global climate policies and that's because the tensions, international tensions implied, uh, will sort of hamper the uh, climate for, for negotiations and global coordination. It took us 20 years of peaceful global development to arrive at the Copenhagen Agreement in 2015. And that sort of tells us how much it takes sort of to bring the world together on these very hard challenges. And once you get these uh, moments of unrest, it will be harder to, to gather the world uh, uh, in meeting this kind of challenges. With respect to CCS, we can't escape it. We have to do it. And my take is that by 2050, we have agreed on net zero emissions. But some sectors will have to emit CO2 even in 2050. You can't bring emissions to zero. Agriculture is one example. But Cement uh, allow, allow, allow me to come up with a counter-argument and have your response. Cement production uh, as another example. Petrochemical industry as a potential third example. And to offset those emissions that have to sort of prevail, at least on a medium-term basis, we need CCS. But CCS as a large-scale solution to justify continued uh, extraction and consumption of fossil fuels, I think we should write it off once and for all. So it's greenwashing. Thank you. CCS equals greenwashing in your view. To some extent, yes. I believe, I believe that expectations have been rise, raised too high for CCS and that it has been used to justify uh, a continued development uh, of uh, the oil and gas sector both internationally and abroad. And look at the oil companies. Those are not the ones who invest in CCS. The rich governments do. So they have not been uh, willing to carry those investments themselves. A, a positive view is the following, that climate talks hardly play any role at all. <laughs> uh, and climate coordination plays a very limited role. What really matters is what Joe Biden gets through in the American Congress, what the European Union regulates the European market, and when President Xi put the entire machinery of the Chinese business into solving the climate issues. 
There's not, I mean, even if the Americans and the, and the Chinese are not even talking to each other at the moment, still both these two dominant economies in the world are moving in the right direction on climate. So maybe uh, we will get there, even if there are not so many results out of the climate talks. Maybe. <coughs> so, so you mean that we shouldn't do anything? Yeah, to be very honest, <laughs> if you ask, I mean, I, I'm here to ask you, but <laughs> I think the climate talks, that's a, like a fair. Uh, you have a fair where you bring a lot of people together, a lot of business, politics, uh, NGOs come together. They have a lot of good talks, but the inner talk of the climate conventions play close to zero role. As an example, when President Xi <coughs> uh, two years ago said that China will uh, peak its emission in the 2030s and be climate ne uh, neutral by 2060, it's much, much, much more important than any decisions made by the climate talks. And when Joe Biden gets his climate package through in the American Congress, I mean, compare the numbers. The big number in Glasgow last year was 20 billion US dollars. That was what we quarrel about. That was the difference between what Hillary Clinton had promised on behalf of the rich nations and what was delivered, 20 billion. Well, just the climate part of Joe Biden's package in the Congress is 350 billion US dollars. That's 17 times more than what we quarrel about in Glasgow. And then some people will say, well, this is mo not money for Malawi. True. But if America invests that heavily in climate, em reducing climate emissions, it will, of course, bring down the price on everything. And that's what the Chinese has done for us, <laughs> brought down the price on everything. Uh, and if the Americans also join the fight to bring down the price on everything, well, then Malawi and Tanzania can finance their own climate emis emission fight without any support from Norwegian taxpayers. But still, still we have to do something ourselves, right? Sure, sure. And we have a lot of opportunities. And like you said, we have a very specific situation in Norway where almost all our electricity production is uh, renewable already. So we have a head start, so to say, compared to competition in order that we have to do something with the consumption. And that is why we should really focus on the industry to solve the consumption problem. Because then we can have an edge and create industries in Norway that can export and therefore we bring value to the country. But let me challenge you from this perspective. The three main engines of the global economy, United States, China and the European Union are now moving. We want them to move faster, but they're definitely moving because they see climate as an opportunity for new business. Norwegian emission is 1,000 part of the global emissions. So even if we were to wipe it out completely, it would have limited global impact. So then the question comes, what is kind of, what, what's the most important contribution from Norway? How can we add to what Biden, she and the European Commission do? What, what, what are the actions from Norway which really matters in the global context? And I would like to challenge on this. Gudrun? I just think that uh, well, there are two parts of that role. So what can we contribute globally? Not so much. We're not tipping the global economy in any way. We can, but we do have a certain responsibility because we have historically emitted. We, we, Norwegian emissions from oil and gas are about 10 times Norwegian actual emissions. So I would argue that we have a certain responsibility to export technology, including CCS, um, renewable energy in developing countries, all those things. 
And then um, on an, it's maybe interesting on an aggregate level to sort of say what really matters. It's if, if you cut emissions in half in the EU and China and the US, well, we're far along, but what are these people going to do? Uh, are they going to go out and search for oil and gas that nobody wants to buy? It's not a good life. And so for Norwegian politicians, it's just as much a responsibility of making sure that there are actually good lives and jobs in this country in a scenario where we have reached climate goals. And then we haven't even started talking about nature, that close race, which is also important, but maybe we won't get there. Our sort of challenge is that the immense wealth of our nation has the same source as the climate challenge. And many would argue that that raises a special responsibility for Norway in contributing to the solution. So, at the same time, we are willing to sacrifice approximately, uh, approximately nothing to uh, solving this uh, challenge in an international uh, context. We want to develop the oil and gas industry, not to dismantle it, so to continue sort of business as usual for that part of the economy. Uh, and we want to keep uh, the oil fund to ourselves and not share it with anybody as if we had deserved it, so to speak. So I think that we could provide signals to the world if we were willing to make sacrifices because of the immense wealth that we have accrued which has the same source as the climate challenge. And we could also provide signals to, to the world in uh, embarking on a development whereby we scale down the oil and gas extraction because that's what is required by the world by 2050. In 2050, extraction and consumption of fossil fuels will have to be roughly zero. So how could we contribute to that development? That's sort of my question. If we took the climate challenge seriously, wouldn't we start using the enormous oil revenue of Norway to invest it in all the alternatives we need? Wouldn't that be the response which was really taking That's it seriously? a fair issue that we should, should discuss thoroughly. And then maybe we could play a key role in some technologies where we have substantial uh, potential, I mean, you, you mentioned climate capture, green hydrogen, offshore wind. There are areas where Norway has natural conditions for playing a role which is much bigger than Norway itself, isn't it? Yeah, I, I would say it doesn't have to be philanthropy. It doesn't have to be giving away money. To I mean, it's creating new businesses. It's creating green, sustainable businesses that allows us to create new jobs, that, that builds on top of our existing expertise, but at the same time contributes. That's where we need to be putting that money, I think. Well, we make sacrifices when it comes to CCS. Nobody has made money on CCS yet, and the government has spent billions, so <laughs> we could continue in other areas. And we sort of insist that these CCS plants should be built in Norway. But you, Eric, would know that we would get much more bang for the buck if we sent the money to China and let them do the job. Huh? <laughs> but that's also, and the, and the climate challenge sees no borders. So it's uh, irrelevant where these uh, CCS plants are developed and you would, uh, you would get a uh, tremendous, much higher effect if you built them elsewhere in the world.
But the easy thing to start with is to do energy efficiency, right? To reduce the consumption in electricity or others. Then we have this uh, solar power, which we can easily get more out of in Norway. We can still develop another 10, 15 terawatt of hours uh, in, in hydropower. But you but are representing a German company. If you go around, if you, I mean, I, last summer I was in Baden-Württemberg. I didn't see one farmhouse without solar panels on the roof, not one. If you go around in Rogaland, which has a lot of farmhouses, you are struggling to see the farmhouse with the solar panels on the roof. Yeah, yeah, but my point why, was that, why, why, that, why that we, do that? But we, that was because of the energy and the incentives, as you know, sure. from before. Sure. But my point is that we have so many means in order to do something and, and get on the road and do something. Uh, in addition, we need to create a lot of, of more power. As you know, we need to increase our power production electricity from something like 150 terawatt hours to some 250 terawatt hours, which is enormous. And that means that we need to create this production. And we see, of course, that we can do more hydropower. But again, it takes six to eight years from you start with it and until you're finished with it. It's about the processes and getting concession and, and to get it approved. This is the major problem. And then you need to go on with uh, wind power, either on onshore or offshore or floating. To really leapfrog this, you need to have enormous amount of offshore wind in order to make it happen. And then you may need also grid out there. You need an interaction with the other countries in order to make this to, to work. So it's a lot of opportunities for, for Norway and for the Norwegian industries. It's I, I just meant, meant to compliment the German government <laughs> for, for all these incentives, which are good. France just decided that if you want to build a new commercial uh, building in France, you need to put solar panels on the, on the roof. It's mandatory. It's no choice. Why, why don't we do these kind of things here, Sigrun? I think there's been a shift. This kind of discussion of can the others do it and then we can keep on going as we were, it, that's how we used to discuss climate policy. And at this point, and that's why you're partly right, it matters more what national governments do because all the national governments are now seeing this is where we're heading anyway. We're going to be at zero in 2050. There's not going to be a global economy that is carbon-fueled. Uh, and so it doesn't really make any sense anymore to sit and try to extend what we currently have and let the others do the job because it's not going to be good for us in the long run. Now we're talking. I started by talking about the crisis that we're facing, yet we call the climate optimists. Eric, is there any reason for putting that label on us? Absolutely. I'm optimist, but maybe because I spend so much time abroad, I have to, have to admit, uh, the dedication and speed on this in China is enormous. And of course, the, uh, the industrial power of China is incredible. And they are moving very, very fast. I mean, to put it very simple, we need to get up very early in the morning in Europe and America if we want to compete with China. And here there will be issues also. I mean, the, the package which um, has put, been put forward by, by Biden is brilliant. I support it. But a lot of, the, a lot of this is to favor American business, which is understandable. Because, of course, uh, and the American politicians need to create jobs in America, as a European politician need to create jobs in Europe. But that may also get into trouble, because it may make a number of the solutions more expensive than if they could build it upon Chinese or, or Indian uh, com companies. So there are many, many issues here, but I'm optimistic because I see the dedication in China. India, much, much poorer. 
the Prime Minister Modi is moving fast on every day in this direction. And then, of course, the European Union is driving this change in Europe. And we are so lucky <laughs> that the decisions are, uh, for, for Norway is more made in Brussels than in Oslo, I have to say. So let's conclude on that optimistic note. Thank you for listening.